This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. I have in mind to speak with you a little bit today about the illusion of subject and object. Hi, sweetheart. My dog's going to be jealous. <laughs> Would you like to come sit on my lap? What's this lovely dog's name? Linda. 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 Beautiful. (laughs) For those I've not yet met, my name is Jean, and I'm a Dharma heir of Catherine Thanis in the Suzuki Roshi lineage. Um, and I practice at Santa Cruz Zen Center and also in Humboldt County uh, Arcata Zen Group where I'm the head teacher. Delighted to be with you today. Familiar faces and new. So I've been thinking about this um, subject-object dilemma, partly because I've been studying trust in mind, or sometimes called faith in mind, with the Arcata group. Um, And this recent event of the shooting of Muslims in New Zealand um, really struck my heart deeply, as it has to many people around the world. And um, partly what I'm perceiving is that this level of extreme violence is kind of the extreme expression of objectification. And we see this at the level of society. But how are we to make sense of this kind of death? our Muslim sisters and brothers, and the many acts of aggression right here in the United States, right here in the city, that I myself have been on the receiving end of uh, in queer culture by other queer people, uh, on the receiving end of aggression in the heteronormative world, you know. How are we to make sense of this kind of aggression? And here's what I see. Uh, We have a tendency as humans to create separation where there is none. And then it becomes supported and encouraged and I would say even exaggerated by our society and by our culture. It's a very natural human tendency to to see an object, you know. We're animal bodies. In some ways, we have to discern what is um, of risk to us. And so there is a tendency to create an object. No one here, I believe, would resort to extreme violence in any way. And yet, you know, let's be honest, we objectify. 
and we project and we um, cause harm even without wanting to. Even within Sangha, where we all uh, hold many of the same values. So in this thing that I've been studying called Trust in Mind, <coughs> there is a phrase that is um, in the version we use in Santa Cruz. It says, the struggle of likes and dislikes is the disease of the mind. And I would call that actually dis-ease of the mind. Another way of saying that, in a different translation, to set longing against loathing makes the mind sick. Sometimes a very slightly different translation of something reveals you know, likes and dislikes, longing and loathing. All of this exists on the same spectrum of objectifying. So the subject-object construct is part of our humanness and it's problematic. I would um, diverge from my notes for a moment to show you the characters of trust in mind. This is faith or trust, mind, and inscription. Maybe I can tell you a little bit about the characters and it reveals something about the poem itself. It's many lines long. <clears throat> but the title itself tells us something. So this side, you probably know something about characters. They have a root word hiding in them, usually. This, the left side of this top character is meant to um, be a pictograph, in a way, of a person standing. And the right side of it is a mouth. We could imagine that we're thinking of these lines above the mouth as vibration. So the sound coming out of mouth is what we would call word or speech. <laughs> so this character would literally translate as a person who stands by their word. So the underlying meaning then, trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And the translators of the book that I'm now in, Trust in Mind, chose the word trust rather than faith. Because in the Western world, Judeo-Christian influenced cultures, faith has a different connotation, you know. So they chose trust to indicate the same thing based on this character. And this middle character we, we see frequently in the writings of our school. It translates as mind and it also translates as heart. In a detour anecdote, you probably know the artist and what I would call brilliant translator Kaz Tanahashi, you've heard of him. So he was offering a workshop at Santa Cruz Zen Center several, many years ago now, and um, offered a few characters to practice. Everybody with paper and ink laid out along 
the platforms in the Zendo. And um, somebody asked him, so one of the members of the group asked, why do you have one word for two things? And, you know, the sound of this in Japanese pronunciation, shin, and he translated it as mind and heart. So this person asked, why do you have one word for two things? And he, without missing a beat, said, why do you have two words for the same thing? Brilliant. Right to the point. So, trustworthy, mind, heart, and this character below. Um, this left-hand side means gold or precious. If you're going to exchange money, this is the sign you would look for. <laughs> Something, anything related to money. And the right-hand side of this character um, is name. And that implies family name. And because this is a Chinese character, we, um, that implies reputation. Because who one is is connected to their family's reputation. So we could translate this bottom character as the most precious name. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some of the translations, this is simply called an inscription. But we might call it uh, <clears throat> the most precious poem of the mind and heart of someone who stands by their word. This is the delicacy of translating. You know that it includes some layers of interpretation through the mind of the translator, because each one of those characters has many potential meanings built into it. So it seems like a long detour, but I want to bring it back to what we're involved in in practice is landing on what is our authentic word? What are we willing to stand by, you know? And then we make great effort to return to this again and again. The practice of zazen itself, as we just experienced, in my view, is a training for being able to return to the stable core that uh, somehow knows who we are when we forget. So the training of the mind in zazen is like, okay, here I am intending to sit for the next 40 minutes or however long the periods are here, and thought pops up. I can choose to follow that thought or sometimes they follow themselves naturally. New thought, new thought builds on old thought. And the task is to return to the body, to return to the breath before I've gotten into judgment and evaluation. Where the same thing is true, uh, sleepiness might arise. And uh, following sleepiness, dreams come. And I have the terrible affliction of being able to sleep sitting. It's, it's not healthy. It's not a good thing. 
but even dreaming here on the cushion. In a book um, called Opening the Hand of Thought, Uchiyama describes this as the experience of becoming sleepy and dreaming is not really different than allowing the mind to wander and think thoughts. It's basically the same thing. So the task of zazen is to return to the body. And there's no idealized state necessarily. The, the practice of zazen is the returning. So with this in mind, related to subject and object, our task is to use this developed skill in our lives to return to the actual present moment rather than to something we imagine might be happening. In, um, so the, the opening of trust in mind is the great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. When longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against. The struggle of likes and dislikes is the disease of the mind. So, I got stopped for years, I think, by that first sentence, the great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. Like, how could that even be possible? You know, because our own preferences are so predominant. And just to make sure we know, that phrase, the great way, is talking about the Buddha's way, Buddha Dharma, you know, the great way. And the way, the, the character in this case referencing that, is the same as um, the path or the innovative teaching of the Buddha, the Eightfold Path. That's the way that it's talking about. So a little bit later in Trust and Mind, um, about a third of the way in, uh, after teaching us a little bit about how the struggle of likes and dislikes causes unease, there's this sentence, when thought objects vanish, the thinking subject vanishes. And that's another one that stopped me for a few years. What, what, of examination. So this brings us into um, a little bit of a historical look. This is where my studies went to understand that one sentence. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, the core of the Buddha's teaching and then the expressions in various cultures throughout time are all about this uh, not getting hooked by the illusion of subject and object. So there are a, very, a variety of ways of deconstructing it. The Buddha's teaching itself, if we look at um, one of the original admonitions to understand the cause of suffering, 
and understand the potential of the release from suffering. This is the, the great way. So. I'll do a kind of fast-forward thing uh, to get to current time. With that as the original Buddha's teaching, based, of course, on the culture and society in which he was living. Soon thereafter, we have something that is, I believe you're studying, called the Lankavatara Sutra. And in this, um, the teachings about Buddha nature and the teachings about the um, Yogacara, as we hear it, are embedded in Lankavatara. So it is basically, in its most simple expression, that if a deluded person or subject, that's me, uh, sees something, the object is seen as uh, something that really exists. And this deluded person, me, perhaps you, I don't know, it's kind of by definition, because um, the mind as we normally think of the mind is limited in its capacity, we're necessarily deluded because we're only seeing part of the picture until, until unless, and these brief moments where we get glimpses of not getting hooked by subject-object. We see an object as something that, we interpret it really, as something that really exists, and then we give it some kind of strength. So the implication in the Buddha's original teaching, in our understanding of the Langavatara Sutra, is that uh, when we objectify, we're simply reinforcing a false notion. And we can't help but objectify. So this is the tension in which we live. So fast forward about uh, 800 years into China. In the same thing I've been studying, trust in mind, there's this phrase, the way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is extra. Indeed, it is due to our choosing or rejecting that we do not see thus. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So that's the Chinese expression of the same thing. The way is perfect like vast space. And then we become caught, hooked. And then fast forward another 600 years ago or so to Dogen. And this is often quoted in the first two sentences, but I want to say the whole thing because it will echo what we just heard from China. You've heard it many times. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. We've heard that part a lot. Now this part. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. 
when actualized by the myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains. <clears throat> and this no trace continues endlessly. This reflection, when actualized by the myriad things, your body and mind and the body and mind of others drop away. This is an, uh, an expression. We could call it the most precious expression of the mind and heart of someone who stands by their word. <laughs> this very expression is an example of the way is perfect, like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is extra. You see the parallels, I'm sure. So a little bit later, in Trust in Mind, there's a phrase that um, encourages us to loosen the grip. It says, just let go. Just let go. And in my mind, I have to translate that a little bit to make it a little bit more accessible. I have to say, just loosen the grip. It's kind of hard, you know, in our conventional thinking to let go completely. But if I just loosen the grip a little bit, you know, that becomes kind of reinforcing. And it's a little easier to loosen the grip a little bit more. Loosen the grip. Just let things be in their own way. In essence, nothing goes or stays. This is now from the second third of Trust in Mind. See into the true nature of things, and you are in step with the great way. You will walk freely undisturbed. And then my current understanding, I, I shift that a little bit now, too. You are in step with the great way. You are already walking free and undisturbed. And this obscured from our view by our tendency to hold on, to grasp, to objectify. So I want to drop out of this kind of theoretical, historical, and into something very practical. And then let's have some conversation. So here's the practical. Uh, in the domain of talking about cause and effect, you know, or the cause of suffering, it's probably a little bit more accurate to speak about conditions, you know. This set of conditions has arisen based on the prior set of conditions. If I think of it as cause and effect, it's a little bit too linear, like this one singular cause creates that one singular effect. But actually, any one singular cause is more complex than my mind can grasp. So I can only really hold it as a set of conditions, and new set of conditions arise based on the prior set of conditions. So, Based on this set of conditions, this set of conditions arises. Based on the condition of fear, for example, just our animal bodies, based on the condition of fear, defensiveness arises. I recognize that in my own body. I tend to close in my shoulders and abdomen when I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Or 
based on the condition of uh, divisive thought, divisive speech arises. Based on the condition of divisive speech, divisive action arises. We have been on the receiving end of people's divisive speech. We know what that feels like. Based on the condition of perceiving cultural differences as separating, marginalization arises. Based on the condition of reinforcing marginalization, sometimes violence arises. We can see how the very constructs that we cling to can create division and separation and pain. On the, uh, in contrast, based on the condition of inclusive activity, uh, expressions of loving-kindness arise. And there's actually a crux moment, I would assert. We feel this during zazen and then we, I personally lose track of it quite quickly after getting up from zazen. You know, in zazen partly what we're doing is a very refined scientific experiment. We've eliminated every variable and we're left with breathing and blinking. Everything else is extra. I lose track of that quite quickly when I leave the temple. And my own obscurations start to confuse my activity. So, by being able to have received the training of returning to the body, which is returning to this present moment, my interactions with the so-called outside world are a little bit more likely to be wholesome than if I'm, than if I'm in um, a reactive state or a clinging state. I think the mind that is not at ease is a mind that sees itself not really living in accord with the way. Partly the training of zazen is to allow the mind to experience being at ease. And now we have a point of reference to carry with us into the more active parts of our life. Maybe we can have some conversation about uh, the ways in which our own minds might hook us into believing that separation is real. I'll offer this one thing from Suzuki Roshi and then let's use it as a springboard. Uh, there's a there's a um, website, as you know, called Crooked Cucumber and on Crooked Cucumber there is a series of audio files and transcribed talks. This is a transcribed talk from 1967, Suzuki Roshi, trying to explain to that group of people who were kind of, I would say, novice, new to Buddhism. The whole West Coast was kind of new to Buddhism at the time. So Suzuki Roshi is describing um, what will sound familiar to those who are studying Lankavatara. Suzuki Roshi described it as five sense organs, 
plus mind and in his thinking and then as we know in Buddhist thinking the mind is considered just another sense organ six senses and the mind has the faculty of organizing the incoming data basically and then Suzuki Roshi went on to speak about the seventh faculty the seventh faculty being ego and in his words an ego-centered perception is always mistaken because it's always partial. And then this is the thing that turned me about understanding the entire trust in mind. Perhaps it will feed your study of Lankavatara. According to Suzuki Roshi, there is an eighth consciousness that will correct the mistakes of the seventh consciousness. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? It frees us from having to worry or fret about ego. Just this eighth consciousness is part of the way things are, and our view is just obscured. You are already walking freely undisturbed. So. Here we are, studying the way with our limited capacities necessarily, if especially when we try to talk about it, necessarily limited, because words are not refined enough to reach. We study the way, we focus on some verbal understanding, and this, uh, this conversation, and maybe our dialogue now, is meant to be understood not in the realm of reasoning or logic, although that's a portal for many, not for everyone. Maybe you have some questions or comments and insight you'd like to share, a way you'd like to teach each other. Yes. Uh, who's the author of this work? Of the Trust in Mind? Mm-hmm. Musong. Musong. Okay. In Roman letters, the uh, song, S-O-E-N-G, if you're going to look for it. It's a very beautiful translation at the very beginning and commentary. And interestingly, uh, comes back to include Alan Watts. So, you probably have read a book called um, The Religion of No Religion, Alan Watts. Musong actually quotes Alan Watts. Somehow I find that inspiring, that it's come a little full circle kind of around the globe. Oh, then Musong is contemporary. Yes. Yes, yeah. Um, I've encountered uh, quite a few people who, having read this poem, think that they are not allowed to have a favorite type of pizza. Yeah. Could, could you comment on that? Right. It is, um, 
we are allowed to have a favorite kind of pizza or a favorite kind of ice cream. Uh, and in some ways it doesn't need to be explained. It just the particular conditions of this life and these taste buds are attracted to that and not that. Simple. Where we get into trouble is if you like one kind of pizza and I like another and I try to convince you to like mine. That is what I would call kind of an ego-centered perception and that's where we get hooked. Was there more in your question or something you'd like to say? That's good, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yes? Um, what arises is that another version of that might be taking us back to things as they are. Yeah. Accepting things as they are would be kind of the opposite of picking and choosing. Yes. That's all I have to say. Yes. Very sweet. And, you know, we, we test this out against our own values. For example, with the deaths of the Muslims, I reached out to my Muslim friends and said, I stand with you. So I accept that violence occurred. And I will also step into and say, no, no. let's take care of each other. So there's a balance of, well here, I'm formulating my thought as I speak aloud, but it is accepting things as they are is not passive. No. It is, yes, this is what's happening, and now what is my appropriate response? Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, sometimes you've mentioned the phrase, uh, get hooked. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a way to get unhooked? Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, it's kind of graphic for me, I hope this isn't scary, but it's a lot like a fish getting hooked, uh, and I got pulled way off, you know? So, both. What is it that has pulled me off? Identify the conditions of this and accept the reality of it. And what do I need to do to return to center? Mm -hmm. so, uh, most often, it is something, some illusory construct that I am clinging to that pulls me off. Oh, or some idea that I have of something the way it should be <laughs> that is not in accord with the way it actually is. So, in the queer community, you know, we're on the receiving end of this all the time. And even, uh, well, I didn't expect to do this, but I'll give you a very personal example. You may know, you may not know, I'm a trans man. So, within the queer community, uh, within trans community, I get criticized for, be, for having bought the binary. <laughs> I get criticized for being too uh, male. So even within the queer community, you know, we get slapped down because 
I don't look like somebody thinks I ought to look, or I don't sound or behave like somebody thinks I ought to sound and behave. <clears throat> so I have versions of that that I do on other people, you know, and I try to mitigate this, especially in the teaching role. You know, the bells are supposed to be rung this way. And I can get pretty wound up if somebody is not ringing the bells the way I think they ought to be rung. Um, <clears throat> another self-reveal. Uh, you may know that I am a retired public school teacher. And one of the grades I taught was kindergarten many, many years ago. And I got pretty upset with a young, a child who didn't tie their own shoes before they went out to play and was tripping on their shoelaces, you know. And I got mad without even inquiring, why don't you tie your shoes? And the child looked at me and said, I don't know how. Oh, I see. Maybe one of the roles of a kindergarten teacher is to teach you how to tie your shoes, right? I, so I did. But the example of that, that child taught me something. Like I was making assumptions about what a five-year-old should know how to do. Uh -huh. And I didn't take the time to inquire before I got mad, you know? So, a way to, this is a, a long rambling response to your simple question. One way to get unhooked is to go toward inquiry first, before we get ourselves into trouble. Yes? Um, it, it was interesting to hear about that, uh, the seventh and eighth uh, senses, I guess. Um, he called them faculties, but we, but in what you're studying, it's they're called uh, consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been recently sort of struggling with that, um, the eighth one there, <laughs> mm -hmm. and. Uh, finding myself in a situation where um, I have to decide what to do about a situation and there's uh, clearly this part of me that knows exactly how things should be yes. and, and thinks, okay, I'm just going to go all in and do what, what I think should be done. Yes. But then I take a step back and think, well, what do other people think should be done? Or what are their stakes in this? And um, I can take a step all the way back and lose my own perspective. And it's really difficult to find a balance that <laughs> works for everyone, <laughs> including myself. Right. And I just wonder if you have any advice or um, experience with that to share. Mm -hmm. I would inquire with you, you know, like, um, it seems wholesome
to take that step back. The eighth consciousness is an inclusive consciousness. So it seems wholesome to take that step back and um, engage what are the stakes of the other people involved here, what are their points of view. And then the inquiry is, uh, in the body, how do you know when you have stepped too far back? You know, how, what, what is the recognizable sensation of when I've lost my own uh, intention? Do you have a sense of that? A sense, yeah, some sense. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. So um, there's effort to be made there, and this is the coaching. It's not really advice. <clears throat> One of the Eightfold Path is called Right Effort. And um, this doesn't, it's not contrasted right and wrong. It's upright effort. And um, a simple way of describing this, I'll do the short version. Uh, a simple way of describing right effort is um, before something unwholesome has popped up, I try to prevent it. And when something unwholesome has already popped up, I make an effort to abandon it. So prevent and abandon are repair. <coughs> when I'm looking toward the positive, it's my intention, uh, and it hasn't yet popped up, I cultivate the wholesome. And when it has been cultivated, I maintain it. So part of, um, this is now back to your question, part of the trigger is uh, when I identify that inward body feeling of I've stepped far, too far back, am I in the realm of um, preventing and abandoning? Is that where my effort has to be? Or am I in the realm of cultivating and maintaining? Is that where my effort has to be? So then, then I trust that the right response will naturally emerge when you identify kind of the way things are. Mm -hmm. Use that as a point of reference. Prevent, abandon, cultivate, maintain. Which way does it have to tip? Maybe that's a good place to close and uh, we can have some less formal conversation. I always feel a little overdressed when I come here. <laughs> Let's see if we can have some less formal conversation and continue. Thank you very much.